Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Before we start today's episode, which by the way, is a great conversation with Leanne, full of insights and gold nuggets for you to take away, I have a confession. When we recorded this episode, I had a bad chest infection, and unfortunately, we were not able to keep all of the weird noises out of the finished product. It's a little bit distracting, and I apologize for that. And that's a shame, because the interview is actually really good. I hope it won't detract too much from your enjoyment of this fascinating chat. I hope you'll uh, put up with me as we struggle through. Please accept my apologies. Let's go. Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you today from Nyungumbar country, and this is Supply Circles, the business improvement podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of the three Ds of 2024? Digitalization to keep up with your peers in your industry and to find urgently needed efficiency improvements. Decarbonization to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and indeed in some states by 2045. And diversification, the need to build a broader business base that is not overly dependent on any single relationship, whether it be a product, a technology, a supply chain, or an export market. Each fortnight, I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain, I chat with fascinating and interesting people, and we try to have some fun along the way. Over the last few episodes, we've been investigating the current market conditions of softening demand and what that means for supply chain management and operations. In episode 40, economist Dr. Jeff Wilson told us that Australia's leading CEOs are expecting a tough fight for revenue this year, and they will need to find innovative solutions. And since then, his team have reported economic, uh, the latest economic data shows, quote, the new orders and activity stroke sales indicators both fell to their lowest reading since early 2020. Last episode, I spoke to David Schleffel, and we spoke of the need to find efficiency through your brand to align the brand offering with the business operations, efficiency through alignment. And today, I want to extend that thought one step further for you. To state the obvious, to be a successful supplier, you actually need to be a supplier. You need a customer. And to keep that customer, you need excellent internal operations and a well-managed and efficient supply chain. And you need to be able to prove it. Because businesses are often required, in order to win new businesses, to explain their excellent internal operations and strong supply arrangements. And as we all know, the most demanding way of explaining and detailing your business operation is via a written response. In other words, when we're asked to respond to tenders and bids. But as many listeners will know, and I can personally attest, bid responses are complex, expensive, and high risk. They require hard work and long hours, they come with tight deadlines, and they're stressful. There's no guarantee of success. To make matters worse, in this current market where businesses are experiencing low demand and are having difficulty in growing markets and gaining new customers, we are seeing more and more businesses looking for new revenue via the numerous contracts and bids on offer. So it's even more competitive in this space than usual. So what to do? Should I expend resources in preparing and submitting bid responses 
that have a good chance of failing? What can I do to increase my chances of winning? What are the keys to winning business in this competitive environment? And what are the issues and implications for the issue of the bid? What are they after? What's the issues for my team and for my suppliers and my resources? All good questions, all worth exploring. So I'm pleased to say today that my guest is a specialist in writing successful bids, particularly major bids and large tender responses. Her name is Leanne Webb, the founder and managing director of Aurora Marketing. I've asked Leanne to join us today because I met her when we worked together to assist SMEs in Western Sydney to understand the process of becoming a successful defence supplier. I was so impressed with her ability to work with the top end of town and with the SME community. I'm excited to chat with her. So hello, Leanne. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you, James? Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you here. I really enjoyed that uh, time we had in Western Sydney chatting with with, uh, the SMEs who were all keen to enter that supply chain. We had a, a, a great connection, I thought. And it was an it was an excellent day. That masterclass on uh, how to work with primes in defence and how to prepare your quad charts. It was it's an excellent day, an excellent workshop. And you did fabulously. Let me introduce you to the listeners. As the founder and managing director of Aurora Marketing, Leanne is widely regarded as the undisputed pioneer of the bid management industry in Australia. With over 20 years in the industry, Leanne has a deep expertise in major and mega projects, uh, particularly in the construction, infrastructure, transport, and defence sector. At Aurora Marketing, she's assembled a team of over 50 bidding experts across six locations, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and Perth, uh, and others. The 50 specialists are supported by a comprehensive tender system of tools, processes, and precedents that help Aurora win. Leanne tells me the company proudly boasts, check this out, proudly boasts a 98.5% success rate that has resulted in more than $160 billion of work won by clients. And those clients, it's impressive. Her top-end clients include Downer, CPB, Lendlease, Wattpack, BAE Systems, Saab, and many others. And she's worked on projects such as Queensland Train Manufacturing Program, Melbourne High Capacity Metro Train PPP, South Bank TAFE and Educational Precinct, Darwin Waterfront Development, Defence Cairns, uh, HMAS Cairns Redevelopment, Defence Australia Singapore Military Training Initiative, and Defence New Air Combat Capability. Whew, what a CV. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> impressive. All right, well, that's the, that's the official snuff. Now, tell us about you. How did you get into this industry and, and why? Yeah, well, actually, why is a good question because most people who have ever done a tender <laughs> say never again, and yet here I am <laughs> doing it day yeah, in, yeah, day out, yeah, one of the crazy nutter. ones. <laughs> you're a nutter. There's no doubt about that. I still have – I mean, I've got my grey hair from tenders, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And actually at Aurora, it is uh, one of our internal – um, culture elements is that we do refer to us as the crazy ones because anyone who would want to do this more than once, um, yeah, uh, is special. So um, I, like most people who are in tendering or in bidding, I fell into it. Uh, and basically that just means that nobody goes to university or starts a career thinking, I'm going to work in bidding. Uh, I mean, it's not really even an option to do that at university or anything like that. How does one even do that? 
So um, it tends to flow out of a career in writing or marketing or communications or even in business development or sales. And, and that's what my background had been. And when I was a marketing manager going back to the start of my career uh, 25 years ago, uh, tenders would fall on my desk uh, because I was the marketing person, so who else was going to do a tender? And uh, and to be honest, I didn't like doing them when I was in-house in the organisations I worked for. They usually oh. landed on my desk, you know, three weeks after they'd arrived <laughs> to the company <laughs> and then, here, yeah, <laughs> it's due tomorrow, <laughs> can you help? Yeah. So I didn't love it too much uh, in-house. But as a consultant, um when I started to have clients uh, with my marketing consulting business asking me to help them with tenders, I found it a completely different experience. And it was because I was dealing with a different type of client, was really focused on the success of these projects and putting everything they could into winning. And uh, yeah, some of the first tenders were some of those uh, mega projects. And uh, it was just an absolute thrill to be able to be involved in a project that was so significant, you know, a city shaping um, or in some cases nation shaping project that I could be involved in. Uh, it was wonderful. What a privilege. That raises an interesting question. I mean, I, I guess my overriding uh, kind of expertise is in communications, but I've got a lot of friends who are engineers and we sit on totally different aspects of the Myers-Briggs kind of, you know, matching. <laughs> yes. what, what, what sort of people are good at, at, at putting together bids? What, what are the traits? That is an excellent question. Uh, well, the irony there is that the more technical you are um, and the more thorough and uh, specific you are, actually the better you are at doing tenders. So, you know, people who are engineering or project management, um, lawyers, they are actually excellent at doing tenders. The funny thing is, though, what they have in their head as the way you're meant to do a tender is completely wrong. And they hate doing it because of the way they think they're meant to do it. So it creates this crazy cycle where they hate doing tenders because the, the way they think they're meant to do it, which is completely wrong, and so they do a terrible job at it, whereas actually um, the right way to do a tender, in my view, they are a natural fit for. And what I'm talking about is that most people think tendering is about um, big noting yourself and, um, you know, going on and on about how wonderful you are and how many years you've been doing it and how many um, staff you have or how many locations or whatever, and to just pitch yourself um, and kind of make it flowery and, uh, you know, hyperbole. Actually, what a client wants to hear about is them and themselves, you know, their project, their problem, their risks, their challenges, and what you propose as the solution, and then you can talk about yourself. And so the process of actually writing a really good bid is far more comfortable for an engineer or a technical person when they think of it in that kind of sequence. Start with what the, what the problem is that the client is trying to achieve or what the vision is that they're trying to achieve and then work through what the best solution is um, and alternatives that you might have considered. And don't even talk about you or your company because that's not the important part. That's the uncomfortable, boasty part that no one wants to read about and no one wants to write about. 
Yeah, I remember a, uh, a situation in Western Queensland in the LNG industry where a company had told the Prime that they had 26 earth-moving pieces of equipment. And, and the company thought, wow, that's impressive, you know, in the, in the sort of central western outback to have that many machines. So they went and had a look and they found out that the, now they had two machines, but they had access to another 26. Mm-hmm. The point was is that they were really impressed with the organising capability of this business that they could access 26 uh, machines and, and, and use them as a resource. They were mm-hmm. much more impressed with that than that they owned 26. So the, the answer that they gave that they thought the, the, the client wanted actually wasn't the answer that won them the, the business. And I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? I mean, just figure out what the client's after. Yeah, yeah and start with the client. And, um, you know, I think uh, a great uh, test of how client-focused your tenders are is to actually look at whose name is mentioned first in your response so um, most companies who are in this kind of self-centered mindset actually just talk about themselves from the first word on the first page. It's XYZ company is pleased to submit. XYZ company has been doing this. XYZ company is the best in the business, been around for X years as number of staff or whatever. And somewhere several pages later, they might mention the client. The client is so bored in reading (laughs) this proposal. If we flip it on its head and actually say, oh, the client is trying to do this. They're trying to upgrade an Air Force base or, um, you know, uh, buy a new fleet of trains or upgrade technology systems or or review their legal contracts or whatever it is, what's the thing that the client is trying to do? That's what they want to read about. And they want to they want to read about themselves and this problem that they've got. So actually the first the first part of the whole document should be about the client. You shouldn't even mention your own name uh, until you've talked about your client and what they're trying to achieve. It's just flipping the the mindset on who the client wants to read about. It's unlikely to be you. <laughs> Well, I, I actually want to talk about you. Uh, you've, <laughs> you've got six locations and done many yes. things over 20 years. You've grown fast. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like running a business in Australia uh, at the moment? What's, uh, what was the challenges for you? Yeah, I think um, you nailed it in some of the intro stuff you said, James. Like it is really, it is really tough out there right now. And I think, um, yeah, we're really, uh, I think Australian business is, uh, challenged by the the change in how business operates, you know, through COVID we've worked remotely, um, but now we're trying to move back into offices and there's this change in how our younger generation works um, in the workforce and what they're looking for, all of that. Um, but I particularly um, really feel the comments you've made from Dr. Jeff Wilson about, you know, softening demand. Uh, that is absolutely visible for me when I look at what's happening in the industries that we work in. And uh, I think you quoted some stats about new orders and sales activities being the lowest uh, since 2020. I could definitely um, support that with what I've seen, that there are fewer projects that have come to market uh, at all levels and across all sectors and across each state. Um, In my view, fewer projects have come to market than have in years. And there's been a lot of What's interesting, I think, about the um, feeling out there is there's a lot of talk of the work that needs to be done, a lot of projects in the pipeline and on the horizon from energy to rail to defence, 
every sector in every state has a massive pipeline of work coming, but it's been delayed and delayed and delayed, delayed again and pushed back and under review. So it's it's really been a challenge because there's all the talk about the work, but there's not a lot of work actually coming. So the industries are really feeling it. I'm surprised to, to hear that because, you know, we keep hearing about this big infrastructure build coming out of COVID. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot going on. And, and you're saying they're actually not hitting the ground just yet. They're still in yeah. the... Yep. Yeah. Is that across and, the board? Is that every state or...? or? Yes. Yeah, so from what I've seen, yes. I think it's every state and it's every sector. So it's uh, transport projects, um, it's um, water projects, it's defence projects. And we've had a lot of reviews you know, a lot of investigations, a lot of reviews, a lot of um, a lot of pressing pause on the program of works, uh, so that government at all levels can have a think about what's being done and what's being pre- planned, and then um, you know, consider if they're the right options, and then uh, put out a new plan. And yeah, I guess it makes sense to review and make sure what we're planning on doing makes sense, but. Um, it's it's hard in the industries that we work in because there's you know ultimately work needs to be done, and uh, for a lot of the companies we work with, um, there's a lot of people sitting, waiting for work, <laughs> uh, wanting to be working, and um, and then another project that there's they've been gearing up for is pushback and waiting and review and maybe changing again. So a lot of uncertainty. Does it mean that a whole bunch are going to hit uh, the market at the same time? Well, um, actually, I'd be really happy if that's what happened because <laughs> I've been saying for 18 months that these these projects have to happen and it's really piling up into this massive tsunami of work. But with each six months that has gone past in the last 18 months, I see that tsunami getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I don't, I've, I've been saying for 18 months that it's going to come and it's going to be a big tsunami, but it hasn't started to hit the shores yet. So I'm... Um, I'm, I'm a little it, concerned. It sounds like you might be, uh, you, you, you know, you might be a soothsayer uh, shortly. Pretty much to say, <laughs> I told you so. I told you it was coming. I hope so. I hope so. But um, yeah, there's a, good, there's a good time to get ready then. I mean, if 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 the, the, we're waiting for the bids now, the time. So let's talk about bids and tenders and whatever mm. in your in your twenty years. I'm, I'm sorry to keep mentioning Plus. how long that is. It's <laughs> <laughs> it goes fast, doesn't it? Um, in, in, in your 20 years, you must have seen a lot of new requirements pop into mm. to bids. You know, we've, mm. there's been an maturing of the Australian uh, industry over the, over that deca- over those two decades. And, and, mm. and I guess you've seen things like, well, certainly you saw safety come in and then uh, a whole bunch of other policies come in. And recently we started talking about major uh, modern day slavery. We started talking about decarbonisation. That's going to be an issue shortly. Uh, a whole bunch of requirements have started coming into bids. I'm assuming you've seen that. Can you talk to that mm. just for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right. So there's been a lot of uh, policy changes uh, at the government uh, level, which has then flowed through into the expectations um, and the requirements of tenderers. So tenderers, as you said, you know, Really, the first one that we could have seen a few decades ago was safety, needing to see uh, uh, how companies um, insured workforce um, or workplace safety. Um, then that's kind of evolved also into a safety and well-being and uh, managing fatigue and those kinds of things in their workforces. Um, things that are um, 
absolutely part and parcel of any kind of bid these days will also be local content. So local mm-hmm. content yep. in defence, we would say sovereign capability, um, uh, local supply, local economic impact, uh, local manufacturing, indigenous capability. And in, um, indigenous is interesting as well because there's usually two elements to it. So there's usually um, uh, workforce development, indigenous engagement, um, and how you actually um, respond to your workforce to have more diversity, inclusion, belonging, those kinds of um, aspects reflected in your workforce, including Indigenous cohorts, and then also your supply chain and Indigenous uh, capability being brought through in your supply chain, whether you're working with Indigenous organisations and yep, um, yep. and how, how are you fostering uh, Indigenous um, support throughout the supply chain. And, and so you're um, working with Indigenous organisations locally, but you're making sure that you're not working with modern-day slavery in, in Indigenous supply chains overseas. It's complex. Yes, yes. A bid's worth it. Is it worth it? I mean, that's a lot <laughs> a good of question too. That's a good question too, James. Uh, well, it, it, well, it is a lot of effort. Actually, though, um, while, while I think probably companies need to put more effort in than they typically do, they should probably bid fewer bids than they typically do but put more effort into the ones that they do. So the number one... Choose your um, fights. Yes, exactly. So the number one principle for us, the best lesson to learn out of all of the work we've done is to be brutally selective about which bids you pursue. And uh, if a company... Companies tend to kind of throw their hat in the ring and they, they bid on lots and lots of things, things that they think, oh, we probably could do that if we did this and that and this. But actually, that's going to be a long shot, right? So they're throwing away a lot of hats in maybe, you know, let's say it's 10 bids. They're throwing throwing a hat in the ring on 10 bids. They'd be better off choosing the two or three that are really their best selection and um, bidding really well on those two or three. So I think it's uh, going back to the question of is it worth the effort? Um, it is worth the effort, but there's a lot of effort to do it well. But if what you want is a type of contract or a type of client or a size of client or a size of contract, you probably have to bid if you want that. So if you want to work with government, it's going to have to be through a formal procurement process. Uh, and if you want to work over uh, in contracts over a certain value amount, typically around $50,000 for an engagement or maybe $100,000 depending on the buyer, you'll almost certainly have to do it through a formal proposal mechanism anyway. So if you want that kind of work um, in government or other kinds of sectors like energy or infrastructure and so on, it's the only way to get that work. One of the nice things about uh, doing a, a contract is it makes you, it forces you to think about whether or not you are as good as what you say you are. Can mm. you prove it? Can I deliver on time and can I prove it? It, it really makes you understand how good your business is. And I, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying uh, become very clear about what you do well and then find businesses that are looking for what you do well, try and align it before you mm. can get into that detail of, of responding. Mm. And I think what most companies do when they're throwing their hat in the ring is they're thinking of the tender as a test 
that they need to just answer the questions and submit a compliant response. Uh-huh. And then they're so confused about why they're not winning. Um, but actually all you've done is put in a compliant response, which everyone else should have done as well. And so actually if that's all you've done, then you will be assessed based on value for money and the only way to have won with such a um, limited effort would be if you were, you know, really uh, the cheapest and um, even then that's not a guarantee that you win, of course. So um, to win it is about making sure the client sees the real value that you can offer and usually that's related to how you're reducing risk for them and helping them achieve their objectives better than anyone else. So we like to talk about um, getting rid of the test mindset and putting yourself in the bid mindset because the bid mindset is when you recognise that it's a competition, not a test. It's not a matter of ticking the boxes and submitting a compliant solution or a compliant submission. It's about winning and being in front of everyone else. So you have to be, you know, winning the competition uh, across every question or every criteria in the bid. And, um, you know, if you've got the bid mindset uh, and if your team has the bid mindset, you'll find everything is actually easier. So in terms of is it worth the effort, if you've got the bid mindset, uh, and you're right in the right space with how you think about the tender. Doesn't necessarily need to be an increase in workload from what you're currently doing. It's just more focused, and you'll find uh, it really exciting actually to think about your clients and what their real problem is, and how you can solve it for them better than anyone else. That's what makes tendering uh, so exciting because it's so focused and so tangible. Um, and then, of course, when you win. It's uh, nothing beats that feeling. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of my worst days have been when we're trying to put together tenders, but some of my best days have been when we've won them. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's exciting to get the phone call or whatever it is <sighs> that you get to say, yeah, you're in. Uh, and yeah. It's, uh, oh, yeah, there's that big breath. It's like, wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. Partial yeah. relief and then <laughs> exhilaration. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right. I remember one, uh, one tender that we won not so long ago. Uh, where I led the tender bid. Uh, and, it, you know, we started with the question is, if we win this, are we the best people to perform? And the answer mm-hmm. was, yeah, we should win this because we're the best ones. We're, we're the ones mm-hmm. that can do this better than anyone else that we can see. So we went into the, the whole process assuming that um, all we have to do is explain to them what we know, which is that we're, mm-hmm. the, best, <laughs> that we're mm-hmm. the best solution for them. I love the idea about competition rather than a test, yeah. Nice mm-hmm. insight. Yeah, mm. no wonder you're mm. the undisputed queen in this. <laughs> hey, um, uh, we'll go for a, to go, to, go to a break uh, shortly, but before we do, the biggest uh, contract or one of the biggest contracts that's going to be uh, around the package of works, I should say, rather than a contract, there's a whole the biggest package of works is going to be the, the Brisbane Olympics. I would suggest it's, yeah. a, it's a big thing. Have you heard anything about this yet? Have you got any insights? They've made some big <laughs> statements. They said it's going to be the greenest Olympics. Uh, ever, um, it's going to be very multicultural. Uh, have you have you seen anything, really, any, anything yet about what's going on? Ah, so it's another really great question, James. Um, I think. Thanks, I do it for a living. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually on a committee uh, regarding the Olympics uh, infrastructure, so the infrastructure required in Queensland for the Olympics, and um, there's been a lot of thinking done around 
uh, the venues and villages and what is needed there. That's one of the key phrases they're using in the Olympics is venues and villages. And then what infrastructure is needed. And, and quite critically, the Olympics is a wonderful opportunity to um, catalyse infrastructure that we need in Queensland, um, that we need anyway. So we can use the Olympics as the catalyst to get the infrastructure delivered, like um, upgrades to train lines and um, rail stations and, um, and new rail systems, possibly even. Uh, although what we would say is that we are seeing the clock ticking and, yes, we still have uh, eight years, but, um, you know, there hasn't been uh, as much, if any, work in the industry that we'd like to have seen. So I haven't seen anything come to market that's specifically relating to the Olympics, uh, not that any of our clients have been working on. Uh, we were expecting the GABA redevelopment that was um, announced um, and discussed well throughout last year. Um, it was the last thing that's that... The, uh, the, the GABA cricket ground that they're going to rebuild in time as the centrepiece of the Olympics, I think? Yeah, that was the plan and that's what was announced. Um, but with our change in Premier, um, there's a review of the planned inf Olympics infrastructure underway now. So um, the scuttlebutt seems that that might be scrapped because uh, there are questions about whether that is the best use of money um, and maybe there are alternative venues instead um, and other plans. So as I mentioned before, there have been plans and reviews and uh, holding patterns and we're in another one because that that uh, contract was just about to come to market as an expression of interest and it should, it should have been out right now. Uh, now it's been delayed with another review. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot we're waiting on. Um, most of what's needed for the Brisbane Olympics or the Southeast Queensland Olympics, most of what's needed uh, upgrades to existing facilities. There are a couple of new venues. Um, so there isn't anything uh, really significant. The GABA redevelopment was the main piece um, and then uh, maybe some infrastructure works. And some of that is also happening um, or in the pipeline, but not quite here. Under other Infrastructure projects, anyway, not necessarily the Olympics, yeah. Yes. Uh, you yes, you yourself in then as a, as a Queensland resident? Have you always been a Queenslander? Yes, I have actually, yes. Um, not always in Brisbane though. I um, was born and raised in Toowoomba and then came to Brisbane um, when I finished my degree and uh, got my first first real job uh, down <laughs> here in the big smoke. <laughs> we haven't moved very far. All right, let's go to a break. When we come back, we'll talk about mistakes and, and lessons learned. Great. Thank you. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, Contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Leanne, one of the mistakes that uh, I've seen over the years is when people are completing a bid, uh, they often go with this concept of assumed knowledge. That is, the people reading the bid response know my business, so I don't have to go into too much detail. They know. Uh, or they think they've filled it out in question 17 and so they leave it out of question 92 even though 
they should have put it into both. Is that just my experience or is that a common experience? Oh, that's an excellent observation. And definitely with the uh, the research we do with evaluators, we have a formal program of research with evaluators that we call Behind Closed Doors. So we uh, go to evaluators of projects and ask what bidders do well and what they need to do better. And absolutely a common theme, happens so much more regularly than you might imagine, is that bidders um, presume that the evaluators know about their business and know about their relationship and track record working with the company. And yeah, exactly. Uh, bidders might think, well, we've been working together with this company for 10 years where you're current incumbent. We don't need to provide you with the detail of what we've done um, and what our successes have been. We'll just skip over that bit. Um, but actually the evaluators, uh, they can't uh, incorporate assumed knowledge like that. They they or background knowledge like that. They can only evaluate the bidders based on what's in the formal response. So they're, they're not allowed to um, say, well, I actually know they're 10 out of 10 in this area because of my experience with them. Um, if it's not on the paper, then it can't be scored. The other thing to realise, though, is that the evaluation panels are far more diverse than most people realise. So while yeah, you might have yeah. been working with the company for 10 years, um, mm. that evaluation panel will probably have a mix of people from all different divisions in the company, uh, some people from commercial, from financial, from legal, from wherever, wherever. And some of them might be new to the organisation and they're often thrown into an evaluation process as a new employee or a new team member because you have time available if you've just joined. So often there's no background knowledge that those people actually can draw on anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, best practice is absolutely to include all the information that the reader will need to know to evaluate you. And don't be shy in it too. Include your KPIs, include examples of your um, feedback reports, include testimonials that you've gathered and do so um, in advance, of course. So before the tender comes out, gather the testimonials from the people in the organisation, um, you know, gather the, the KPIs and the stats so that you can proudly show what a great job you've been doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and get specific details from your suppliers. I was an assessor a few times for government contracts, not, nothing big, but uh, as part of the assessor, you are given a document that says, did they answer the question? So question mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, five, question one, did they answer the question? and then write that answer, one to seven or, or whatever. Uh, and it, it, an amazing amount of people left questions unanswered. And as soon as, they, as, soon as you tick no or cross no, uh, they're, they're just kicked mm -hmm. out. They're no longer mm -hmm. part of the bid. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. crazy thing. And it might even be, you know, are you an Australian company? And they just <laughs> leave that because I've said, I've answered that before, so I'm not going to answer that again. Um, yeah. You know, some of the questions seem dumb though, don't they? I mean, not dumb. They seem like, why are you asking this? Yeah, I, well, in fact, on, on that topic of answering every question, that is the number one piece of feedback that I get from evaluators is that bidders don't answer the question. I, I, I cannot believe how frequently I hear that because it's actually the golden rule, answer every single question and answer it in the structure it's been given to you. So if even the question if you has information, that's the problem. Absolutely. Even if you're information, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so if the question asks, you know, three dot points, then your answer should be structured in at least those three 
um, headings, for instance. Yeah, so yeah. answer every question. And it, it is astounding how many bidders don't. And I'm not sure whether it's laziness um, of, of or, or um, yeah, uh, just I've already answered it, so why do I need to do it again? Maybe there's also a little bit of well, why do they need to know that? I'm not going to tell them that. That's something that we can tell them later. But in my experience, um, I haven't seen too many examples of companies asking for questions, uh, asking questions just for the sake of it. I think most of what they're asking, they really need to know, and it is part of their evaluation process because they they want to hire an Australian company or they want to know um, what the impact is on local content, for instance. If that's the question, are you an Australian company? Um, so they're not. Um, they're not asking asking questions just for the sake of it. Um, so yeah, answer the questions, answer it in multiple places, answer with duplication, and answer in the structure that they've um, asked for. But actually, even more importantly, think about why they're asking that, and then go above and beyond. So if it, if the question is, you know, are you an Australian? Australian company, well, yes, and this is the number of um, employees we have, this is our plans for growth, this is the investment we've been making in our local supply chain. So if they're asking about that because your your thinking is that they, they want to develop sovereign capability or they want more Australian suppliers, actually give them more of what they're looking for. So go above and beyond that basic question. Don't just tick the box. Yeah, it's not often they're not word limited. You can actually just give a whole bunch of information uh, over and over again, just keep putting into two different boxes. Yeah, and obviously if it is word limited, then you do need to respect those limits. But um, but often um, they're a good indication of what the client is looking to understand. And I often think the mandatory questions or the compliance questions, a lot of people think of them as the tick of box. It's just a compliant question, tick the mm. box, move on. Mm. If it is so important that it's mandatory, I actually want to understand why that's so important it's mandatory and is there a story I can tell that actually gives them even more confidence in my company's ability to do the work? And it might be, in the case of the evaluation process, a ticker box in a way. It might be a gate that you pass through, but the evaluators will still be left with a stronger feeling of confidence and understanding about your business, even if it is just, yes, they comply, it it, um, it impacts how they evaluate other questions that you've answered because you've created a stronger sense of confidence in the evaluator. Great tip. Yeah, yeah, I love that. One of my favourite, <laughs> one of the funniest answers I read once was available on request. Yeah. So I felt like saying, this was the request. <laughs> exactly. How else should we request it? This was it. <laughs> Have you seen that? Have you seen, you know, I have. Sort of like financials and stuff like that. They say, "Oh, just ask us." Well, we are asking you. That's what the yeah. bid is. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yes, I've I've had that conversation with a few clients over the years, <laughs> saying exactly that. But this is the request. Well, you know, um, this is the request. Mm. Yeah. Um, what What are the other mistakes, or you know, what lessons have you learned over um, your time doing this? Uh, mm. What What can we take away from from let me climb into your head and say, tell me the, tell me the secrets. What are, the, what are the best ways to prepare for bids? Well, to prepare, I think the best way to prepare is to prepare early. So, and uh-huh. especially if you need to partner with another organisation or you're going to join together as a consortium, probably one of the number one failings I see, and it happens even with the top tier and the 
um, crimes, but um, is that they wait until the last minute uh, to decide to bid and mm, then mm. to start their partnership discussions. So often you'll be in the bid phase when you're trying to work out the best solution and the best pitch for the client and they're still debating whether they're even in a partnership and who's doing what and, um, you know, all of the time of the senior leaders is distracted mm. uh, for them to negotiate partnership and joint ventures and so on. So that's probably uh, catastrophic in a way really because and they'll even admit it themselves, you know, I shouldn't be dealing with this. This should have already been agreed. Yeah, so yeah. if the plan for you is that you need to JV in order to bid and you haven't got your JV bedded down before the first phase of bid, I'd say that's probably a, a red flag that you possibly, sh- you know, you've left your run to, too late and, um, you know, it may be too late to do a, a proper bid uh, while you're still distracted trying to do that joint venture. Um, so prepare early with especially those big deal discussions like partnerships and so on, and get started early on trying to understand the client as much as possible. Meet with the client. If you haven't met with the client before you're going to conduct the tender or commence the tender, that's another red flag for me that it's too late for you because someone else will have met with the client. And so somebody else will have that better background, the more detailed insight as to what keeps them awake at night, why they're um, needing to go through this process, what they're trying to achieve. And so somebody else has a strong advantage for you from having met with the client if you haven't been in that room as well. So um, yeah, prepare, get to know the client as well as possible and, um, and, and start understanding what the solution might look like. So you've got time to make it real uh, for your submission. Those are, yeah, those are my key. Well, I, I, that's, that's a great, great comment. Uh, I spent some time in the Northern Territory and a lot of the, uh, the bids and, and tenders that were released from primes or from big organisations uh, had to have a local content aspect to it. Um, you know, the NT government insisted on local content and there was ring fences around what local content was. But there was always the caveat. There was always the get out of jail free which was unless there is no suitable business in the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. So you have to use local businesses unless there is a suitable one. So when answering the, the, the bid or the tender, it was to convince them that there was a local business that could do what they were after. This was a mm-hmm. real sales pitch, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not, like you said, not just compliance, but a really sell, I can do this, and here's mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the clients go into a tender process with a list in their mind of who they think would be ideal to deliver this work or to contract with. So they've got a short list in their mind. Just like if you were to go buy a new car tomorrow, you'd probably have a short list of the the kind of cars that you'd like to inspect and test drive and so on. And, you know, there might be one that's definitely the top of your list, but, you know, you're going to give a couple of others a, a fair consideration. Clients enter a tender process in the same sort of way where they've got a short list of who they think is capable and who they probably really want to work with. And then the tender process helps them really compare apples to apples and work out which one is the best provider for them. Uh, but that short list in their mind is is developed before they go to market. So you want to be on that short list. You want to be in their mind already as 
yeah, you know, they, they could possibly do it. Let's give them a go. Or better yet, yes, they are the ones we really want. There's a really good connection. They get what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I have heard them already talk about potential solutions. They're our people, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, a connection, yeah. yeah. So you yeah, want to be yeah. in that space before mm. the bid comes out and then the bid is your opportunity to you know, demonstrate everything. I'm looking forward to seeing that, you know, James and Leanne uh, bid because they look like they might be the right people, but be interesting yeah. to see what they do in their, in their, their response. Yeah. And I think clients go into the process going, gosh, I really hope James and Leanne have nailed this like I hope they will. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. they go in there hoping that their first preference really comes out and, and shines through that process. But And that's that competitive bid, isn't it? Because other yeah. people can can pop up, other other companies can pop up and, and just nail it. And you go, whoa, now I've got a problem. Now there's three companies got to try and figure out. <laughs> what a <Yeah>. problem. <laughs> three yeah, possible sure, sure. brilliant suppliers. Yeah. But um, but the advantage that anyone anyone who has already met with them, the advantage they have is that they've got that understanding and the insight of what the client's thinking about. They understand the issues in the client's words. Um, the vision that they have of what they're trying to achieve, um, their their concerns or the, the strongest risks that they're worried about and so on. Anyone who hasn't met with them or hasn't had that pre-engagement, they are going into the tender blind with only the tender to go by and their experience that they have with other clients in other sectors maybe. Yeah. But yeah. it's definitely an adva- a disadvantage if you are going in there having had no interaction with the client. It's like married at first sight. Not that I've actually seen <laughs> that TV show, but I get the concept. Now that we're prepared for the bid, what are the, what are the keys to a successful bid? Yeah, so selecting the one that you're – selecting the bids that you're going to bid yep, for and be brutally selective. Yep. yep. And then um, I think probably the first thing is to get started as early as possible. So once that tender is out, mobilise your team – lock them in and get them committed and start the analysis and planning process straight away. Don't leave it three weeks um, and think, oh, it'll just come together in a week or it'll come together in a couple of weeks. It's, uh, oops, it's been in my inbox. Uh, you really need to get it moving straight away. And yeah. I think the other the other tip would be to engage as many people in your team and to ga- engage as many experts as you can because uh, I think a great tender is one that covers a lot of perspectives. So it really tries to look at it through the client's eyes, understand the client's perspective, but also, um, you know, reading the question and going, what does that question actually mean? And three different people will have three different views on what that question means. Yeah, I think true, the true. worst examples of tenders I've seen are where one person has, you know, done the whole tender themselves and maybe been um, possessive about it. We don't let anybody else touch it. I do the whole thing because then it's just one person's interpretation and one person's response. And so they're myopic um, versus what's best is to really harness the brain power of the organisation, all the experts, all the um, all of the disciplines and, um, you know, really put together something compelling and uh, exciting for the client. And because of that, it does actually take longer than you think. Uh, not only do you have to get the the response written properly, but you need to get these different views of people in the organisation, get their input, and then try and write it. And you've got to make sure you're responding to the actual question. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've certainly responded to questions, and then I've reread the question and thought, that's not really, that's not the answer. I've, I've got mm-hmm. sidetracked here. I've mm-hmm. gone wrong. I've gone off track. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I do hear people say, um, oh, look, I can just whack this one together myself. I do it on my own. I lock myself in my office and it's done in uh, three days. Yes, okay, well, <laughs> a first draft is done yeah. in, in three days. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Hey, and that's a good point. Once you finish the draft, get shop it around and get people to give responses and, and whatever. Yeah. It takes a while. It just actually does take a while. I started in a really interesting um, discipline on bids going back about 15 years ago when I when we would get the first draft. And, and back in those days, uh, we were in that mindset of gathering together the first draft a week before the tender was due. And uh, we all we thought we needed to do was kind of tidy it up and, and edit it. What I would do is I would um, circulate that first draft and I'd ask uh, the reviewers or the senior members of the um, organization to score the draft. And what was really interesting is this was a first draft that people had taken 90% of the bid time to prepare and they were experts in their fields. The highest I ever saw scored for that first draft was 40%. So here were people who'd taken the entire time of the bid almost to mm. do their best work and being experts in their field. And yet actually yeah. the first draft was never more than 40%. And all, and the reason was is because they had done it on their own, one person myopically um, interpreting the question and and answering their, their, putting together their response, and often you know not very focused either. Uh, but then when you looked at it through the senior leadership eyes, they had all of these different thoughts on what the question meant and what the answer should include. And so then we started this process of getting the first draft much earlier at about the forty percent. Time frame, so that we could match the forty percent development at the same time, and then going through multiple reviews, and the multiple reviews would provide feedback that would lift the document about twenty percent. So in the end, um, the discipline that we follow now is an early draft at about forty percent, and then we go through another two drafts through to finalisation, and tracking it against a sixty percent and an eighty percent target. Um, and that seems to be the methodology we follow to get the very best result. Um, yes, it's a lot, it's work, <laughs> but if you're bidding for something that is, um, you know, significant and maybe, maybe many millions or hundreds of millions, potentially even billions of dollars, um, that's how to pull together the most competitive response. Or if it's just critical to your future success, um, mm. or your sustainability. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we should wrap up. This is fascinating. There's so much good stuff. Back to you, back to your business. Lots of people are probably listening to this and saying, I'm going to have to get in contact with Leanne so I can start winning bids. What's a good client look like to you? Good question, James. Um, I guess for us, probably it's a client that really wants to win. That, that's all that it matters to us is that they really want to win. And uh, most clients do come to us and say, this one tender is coming up and it is a must win for us. It could be an existing client that is recontracting. It could be a new client that they really want to start working with. It could be a new sector to them. But if they've got that mindset that we really want to win, we're in. We love it. Um, they might have a very sophisticated process that they already use. That's fine. We can adapt to clients' ways of working. They might have their own bid team even. Um, that's good too. We work with a lot of clients that bring us in to help them on particular tenders or just want a bit of extra capacity maybe. Um, but if as long as they say this one is one we really need to win, we're there. 
Uh, the other thing actually that clients might come to us for is that um, they might tackle a lot of smaller tenders and maybe they want us to do a little bit of a review of how they're generally responding to tenders to, to provide them with some feedback. So a little bit of tidying up back of house and helping them get ready because they'll continue to do their volume of work in-house. We can help like that too. And of course, we have um, training programs, uh, webinars, masterclasses, um, training workshops, a whole range of things. So we can, anyone who has work that they need to win, <laughs> we, we are there for it. <laughs> we will put your contact details in the, in the show notes, uh, but Aurora Marketing, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to find. I think there's a good tip. I mean, you know, I always went back and looked to see what sort of success rate we had with our tenders, uh, but we never actually went and got someone external to say, tell us how we can improve. That, that, that's a good tip. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you. you being on, on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation full of gold nuggets. I feel inspired now about tenders rather than frightened by them. <laughs> Lovely. That's a really nice thing to say. Thank you. Well, I have uh, really enjoyed it too. Lovely to talk to you again and I look forward to the next time, even if there's no recording. <laughs> yeah, look, look forward to catching Thanks, up uh, in person. No doubt we'll do that this year and uh, I look forward to that. Wonderful. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thank you for your feedback. If you have any feedback on today's interview with Leanne or ideas for the show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland.aigroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. I got a great note this morning about uh, uh, a recent episode and it made my day. So thank you very much. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more business improvement insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.